Welcome back to the Society Case Files podcast. My name is Robert and I'll be your host. Today I want to talk about the malevolence role-playing game a little bit, how I came up with it, what the general concept is, as I have finished the project. It's just now waiting for some editing and playtesting to check it out and then it will be ready for public consumption. The other thing I'm going to discuss is return of investment as an artist, whether you're a writer or you're creating music or whatever the case may be. I want to discuss what that really comes down to, especially when you're first starting out. So, got a lot to talk about. I'm going to dive right in. When you first start out as an artist, you may not have all the resources in the world to throw into the various aspects in order to produce a quality product. You might not have the money to pay a cover artist if you're a writer. You might not have the money to pay an editor. You may not have the money to do much of anything other than to use your own time to do everything you possibly can. And that's where I want to get into the concept of return of investment. There are times that you'll want to either take out a loan or find some money somehow by dipping into whatever your savings, if you're really confident in it, if you've had some indications that that it will be worth it to do so. But there are also times that you can learn how to do many aspects of the process yourself. And that's not just to say that you could learn how to be an editor effectively or whatever else, but maybe you want to become the person who does your artwork for your books or whatever else it may be. Ages ago, an author could just be the writer. They didn't even necessarily write the blurb on the back of their book. These days, you're expected to be an expert in a variety of fields, and if not an expert, at least passably capable of producing or at least finding the appropriate tools to do that job. Um, It's pretty rough. But with all the content coming out, and we're talking the internet is just flooded with things from people who are professional all the way down to the rank amateur who has barely started to people who aren't even really taking it seriously. They're just trying to make a quick mark or a quick buck or whatever else. Way back, and I've kind of talked about this before, but when I first started doing music, we found that we had some choices. If we wanted to do it, quote unquote, the right way back then, then it was going to cost a stupendous amount of money. But we were just on the cusp of being able to do a lot of the stuff at home, the recording, the mixing, the mastering, all of that stuff. We weren't quite to the point we are now where there's so much software and and videos and learning aids out there that you could learn how to do this yourself in a in a better way than we did. But we were able to be very crafty and create our first projects ourselves. Those were on cassette tape. And we basically had a four track. We had a keyboard that could send a MIDI signal to it so that at least the music from the keyboard itself would always be the top notch quality that it could be. And then the only thing that would suffer is if we had to do multiple takes of vocals, guitar, whatever other live instrument we were going to happen to use. Now, those live performances, every time you did one, could strain the tape and effectively lower the quality of the overall product. 
and you're kind of trying to make it as clean as possible. So we just rehearsed more. We ensured that we really knew the project and the song so that we didn't have to take as many tries to get it right. And through that process, we also needed to decide, well, how are we going to create more of these tapes so that we might be able to sell them at a show? And so we needed to come up with a way to do that that was inexpensive. We couldn't necessarily send it off to a duplication place and have them do it because we didn't have that kind of money. We were working pretty crappy jobs because we were focusing more on music than anything else. So as a result, I was doing some temp work at an office, my bandmate was doing some inventory management we really didn't have the resources to tap into quote-unquote professionals for a lot of the things that we were doing and we still wanted to do it so he had some artistic talent so he did our uh the album cover and most of that was done through kinko's with a lot of creativity and ultimately, we ended up with a cassette tape. I mean, it was okay. It was fine. Um, it worked. It helped us take the next step. And sometimes that's all it requires is that you have something in hand to show dedication so that you can move through. I mean, obviously, talent helps and the ability to get some work out there that is interesting enough for other people to want to experience. Um, that's the most important thing. But once you have that, you have to differentiate it from everyone else. Now, back then, we did have the advantage that what we were doing specifically wasn't quite as prominent in our town. There weren't as many people willing to go to the effort that we did to do everything ourselves. And when we finally did need more tapes, we just went and scoured the Goodwills for quality cassette recorders that had been donated because we were on the cusp of CDs coming out and those were going away. And we just made our own duplication farm of a whole bunch of those things chained together, going from one of our masters so that it would play through and just record out to all of those. And then we would have our tapes. We'd put the stickers on ourselves, stuff them, and then sell them at our shows. And uh, it was actually quite funny because years and years and years later, long after those days, we'd even changed the band name. Someone showed up in one of our shows with one of those tapes and wanted it signed. That was amazing. We didn't even have any more of those. Anyway... So we went through the process of doing pretty much everything ourselves. It did include the recording, the mixing, the duplication, selling. Later on, when software became an option and we had the money for the computer to pull that off, we moved to that. And then we were able to make our own CDs. Now, at that point, we did finally start to spend some money because we were making it. And it was easier for us to get a duplication company to produce our CDs rather than have us do it. They actually did it for cheaper than we could have possibly done it. That's not the truth. Back when we were doing the cassettes, it was a lot more expensive. But now that CDs were out, it made sense to invest in a third party to help us out and get some work done. And as we progressed even further, the next step was that the mastering process was something that it made sense to have someone else do it. And the price was justified because there was a return of investment. The amount coming in was so much higher than the amount going out that you could actually consider it a profession as opposed to a hobby that was making money on the side. And that's how it goes for all of this stuff. For example, in the writing arena, when you need a book cover, you do have the opportunity to go and pick up a 
pre-made cover at one of the various websites that have them. And they range from anywhere from $40 to hundreds of dollars, depending on the quality. And most of the artists will provide you with some changes. They'll change the font or they'll move it around or whatever the case may be. They'll make it print ready. It's pretty much a very viable avenue to go down if you want a book cover and you can't do it yourself. And for my part, I started out working with a an artist who did um, a cover and I wasn't 100% happy with it. There were just things that I wanted to change. But I also really enjoy doing art. I just wasn't that great at it at the time. So I didn't really have a solution to the problem other than to use one of those artists. And since the cover didn't really work for me, I had to find another way. So the first step was is that I dove back into Photoshop. I had worked at Adobe. I knew how to use the application way back when. So it didn't take long to reacclimate to the whole process and figure it out. So then what did I have to turn to? Stock art, stock photography, find characters. And I, will, I can't even tell you the amount of hours that I wasted just scrolling through tons and tons of options, looking for the right person to represent whatever character in the book I was trying to create a cover for. I wouldn't necessarily call it a complete waste of time because I did learn a lot about poses and what looks good, what doesn't. And I even did buy a few and put them into book covers. But the ultimate truth was that that just wasn't going to work for the style I wanted to portray from my book covers. So that's when I turned to 3D art and I had to make it differentiate itself from what I had seen over and over again. So I really dove into making it look much, well, just different not necessarily higher quality than what I'd seen, different. And I wanted it to stand out. And so that's how I got into creating the covers that I did. I also looked at movie posters just ad nauseum. I would just browse them for hours and look at propaganda posters from wartime and and just take some of those concepts and employ them into the design. Now, that's how I did it. I threw myself into this process and spent hundreds of hours on YouTube videos and courses and learning different pieces of software all to be able to generate these book covers on my own. And I mean, you might argue that it would have been cheaper to just pay an artist and try and work with them and bounce back and forth. But this way, I didn't have to frustrate another artist because honestly, I was so intense and I had such a specific vision. It was really important to just do it myself And I'm quite certain that any artist I worked with would constantly be thinking, why doesn't he just do it himself? He has such a specific vision. And that's important to think about, too. I'm going to talk about vision in a moment. But it was technically resource-free for me to learn all that stuff. And I came away with a new skill. I've talked about before that when you want to learn something new, you need to make sure that you're actually enjoying it. Because if you just do it solely so that you don't have to pay someone else, you may not do it as well as if you really enjoyed the process. So the things that you find yourself just very frustrated with or really annoying, you do need to find a way to work with someone else because you're going to hate that part. And it might end up being a bit of uh, resistance for completing a project. When you get to the point of, say, having to do the layout of your book, 
You might be like, oh my God, I hate doing that so much. I'm so not doing it. I'm just going to put it off. And so it's important to find alternatives. Now, let's talk about vision for a moment. If you are going to pay other people to do the work that you don't want to do or you can't do, and you can afford it, it's going to have a return of investment, or you don't care about the return of investment on that part, you just want it done, you need to go into that with some flexibility because you're inviting another creative presence into your space to create something. And that is not going to be absolutely your vision. There will be some variation. And I'm not saying compromise completely, but I am saying that with their energy, they might actually have something that is cooler than what you had in your mind. You've got to trust them as the professional they are if you're hiring an experienced professional, at least, that they've done this a lot and that they sort of know the elements that need to be in there. And so when they give you some advice, obviously you're paying for it. You don't have to take it, but you need to really consider where it's coming from and ask some questions. Ask them, well, why? Why is it that you like that better? Of course, you need to make sure they are a professional so that they understand that question is coming from a place of you just trying to figure out where their vision is so that you can try and incorporate yours. And that's sort of the way it is when you hire anybody is that when you bring them in, you are trusting their expertise to do something that you either are not willing to do or you can't do. If it is the former, you're just not willing to do it, but you could do it, that's dangerous because that's when you get the most profound sense of vision that you want someone else to try and meet and match. And really, you're setting people up for failure, including yourself, if you focus too heavily on that and you try to make that happen no matter what. Whereas if you can't do it, then you're really setting yourself up for failure if you have too strong of an opinion of what it should be. You kind of need to have more of a basic guideline and and some maybe just a few specific elements. A great example would be, I want it to be a generic city background. I want the main character to have white hair, their slight build, and have them holding a gun. And then let them figure out the pose. Let them figure out the placement. Let them figure out where the font should go and all of that good stuff. And then see what they come up with. If you go too in-depth without knowing how to do it yourself, then you're placing additional limitations on the creativity of the person you're paying, and it kind of goes against the purpose of paying them. You may as well just try and browse through hundreds of pre-made covers and just have somebody add your text to it. Now, back to my example, if I had somebody come up with what I just described, that might even be more specific than they need. I could just say, my character has white hair, it's an urban environment, and she generally is carrying a gun. I could let their creativity go crazy and see what they come up with. And hopefully you've looked through a lot of their work and you've seen what they can do and you understand that they have a, a very good grasp of creating an atmosphere and making your work stand out. That's the whole point of a book cover is that it needs to be something that people pause at and go, oh, wow, that's cool. And then they read the title and they, you know, continue to dive into whatever it is you're presenting. And this goes for anything. Album covers are the same thing. Uh, it used to be much more important to have a really cool CD cover back when people went and browsed music at a music store. But you know, you're still presenting yourself. You're still creating something. 
And this is a good point to bring back the, if you're doing it yourself, you need to have certain standards that you aspire to. So like, let's say that you create a book cover and you match it to other people. You put it up side by side and you're like, wow, this mine, mine looks fairly amateur compared to all these others. That's totally fine. What you need to do at that point is discern why. You have to be able to ask those questions. Well, why is mine not as good as theirs? It can't just be, well, mine looks like crap because an amateur made it. It should be something like, you know, my character is really popping hard from the background. They don't look like they're there. They look like I copy and pasted them in there. Whereas the professional version, everyone's nicely blended and it actually looks like a full scene. And that's one step that you could go, well, how do I fix it? Then you can go to YouTube or Udemy or whatever course you want to go to, and you can study, well, how do I blend someone in better? What do I do with whatever application I'm using? Uh, maybe I cut them out of their background in a, incorrectly. Whatever the case may be, you'll be able to learn and fix it. And that's the process to creating something good. Now, once you've done it a few times, once you've made five, ten covers, or however many it takes for you to learn, then you're going to have a rhythm and a process, and you're going to be able to quickly compare your work to other people and uh, other artists and decide, yeah, hey, look, that looks really good, and I really like it now, and I am at least on par with the average book cover. There should be something that differentiates your work in the case of a cover, something that, some sort of stylistic thing that gives you an edge, even if it's something a little weird, something that makes people stop. And you have to remember something else. You have to have standards. You have to have the sort of personality that will say, my work is bad or it's not good enough. And you have to constantly be wanting to improve. Even when you get to a point that you can make something that you're willing to share and that you're willing to put out in the world as your cover, you need to be constantly thinking, is there a way I could have improved that? What is the next step to my improvement process? And this is what I was talking about when it comes to being an author. You are constantly having to learn new things all the time, not just for your writing, but for every other aspect. Now you have to be a book cover creator and you have to be looking at book covers with a critical eye all the time. In a lot of ways, taking on art as a profession now you become hypercritical of everything that has anything to do with what you do. Whether it's watching a movie and you're trying to sort of study the plot and see well, what makes this movie super interesting to people that they come and see it in droves, whereas this other movie that I liked, nobody saw. What's the difference? And you have to be thinking about those things so that you can employ them. You don't necessarily have someone available who is a professional who can help you with that, who could read your work and say, well, I've read your book and I've also read this Stephen King book and the difference between the two as far as what's appealing is X. You don't necessarily have that. That has to come from you. You have to be well-read, well-versed, understand multiple genres, watch a lot of different things or at least keep up with them, understand what's in, what's out, what's old. I mean, it's crazy. There's so many things to keep in mind as you go about this. Now, the level of intensity that you come at all this stuff is really up to you. How much do you want to invest of your time into all of the aspects of writing? 
how much do you want to learn? How much can you learn? How much time do you have? Is your job going to allow you to learn all of this stuff? Because when I was learning to do the art for the book covers, I was having to write and work a very hardcore full-time job, as well as whatever other things came up. So it was pretty intense. I mean, that's what I did. I basically had three jobs at the time as I learned how to do the various aspects of what I do. And you could even say I had a fourth job since I was working as an editor for an online uh, publication house, too, to really get immersed into what it means to attack a manuscript. So this is how I went about it, is that I just found ways to take on these duties in a way that it wasn't self-regulating not completely, at least, you know, I'd get a book in my email and they'd say, hey, we need this in three weeks. So here I am having to read this book and use my tools and really attack it and understand, well, what's what's wrong with it? What's what can be done better? Because we weren't just doing the sort of editing where you go through and find mistakes. We were trying to help them catch inconsistencies and that sort of thing. So there's a lot of ways you can go about it. If you've got the skill set, if you've got the education to do some of these things, obviously I was able to do the editing because I had gone to school for this and and knew what I was doing and was able to basically apply for the job and get it. Whereas maybe you don't have that skill set. So you're going to have to figure it out. You're going to have to learn it or not. And this is where we come back to a return of investment. So Let's say editing isn't your bag. And a lot of people say you can't edit your own book anyway. That's not necessarily true. There are some fantastic ways to go about it. One of which is to let the book sit for a good month, do other things, completely forget about it. And when you come back to it, you're much fresher. Uh, You can read the book aloud. That helps a whole lot. You can compare it to your notes. You can build a second draft based on all of these different things. You can send it to beta readers who just want to read it for free and get their opinions. There's lots of stuff you could do, but you can also pay an editor. Now, paying an editor is a great idea, but you have to go into it with some, you have to go into it with your eyes wide open. For example, an editor is still human. They're still going to find mistakes. This is true of major books as well as your independent book. Um, I just read a Stephen King book, and there was a fantastic typo. There was actually a bracket in a sentence. This is a book that's been out for a decade. I guess I just didn't have an updated printing, maybe. But there it is, a bracket in a Stephen King book. And there's typos in there. I found at least three. So this is, like I said, a much older Stephen King book. And errors. He's got professional editors, people who have been probably doing it for a very, very long time. And they aren't the first editors to get a hold of that book either. You know that his wife reads them is what I read. And I'm sure his son helps. I'm sure he's got plenty of support to read through his book prior to getting it off to the publisher who then has their people attack it too. The folks who write the new Dune books, they do multiple edits back and forth, sending it to each other before it even goes to an editor. Then it goes to the editor. Then he attacks it. And I still found more than a dozen huge mistakes in one of the newer Dune books. Just crazy stuff. 
So if you keep that in mind, you have to think about this. Perfection might be a lie. And there are dozens of memes about editing that are pretty funny. A great one is the best way to find a typo is to laboriously go over editing it and read it dozens of times and have hundreds of people read it only to months after you published it, open to a random page and boom, there's your typo. And I know they were being facetious there, but I mean, in all honesty, you're going to have some mistakes. It's, it's probably inevitable. Now, I'm only using terms like probably and maybe when I'm talking about perfection to account for the fact that you might get really lucky. But the chances are that there's going to be some mistakes. Now, most people will forgive a few. It's repeated errors using the wrong word over and over and over and over again or using the same word many, 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 many times until it becomes noticeable. That's when errors bother people. That's when you start to see negative reviews about editing. It's when something is happening so much that it becomes irritating. And those are the things you really need to focus on. I had a problem with the word that. One of my drafts of one of the Society Case Files novels had the word that so many times it was it was unbelievable. Um, so... I attacked it. First off, I went through and edited and I found every single instance of it and I found a better way to say it. And that practice, just that alone, made a tremendous difference in my writing because I forced myself to start thinking about the structure of a sentence in a different way. And after I had corrected it, future books, I would start down a path of thinking, ooh, that would you know, be fine or whatever. My natural inclination to write that was still there. Um, but because I was conscious of it, I'd stop myself, rethink that sentence and go on. Now I don't use it nearly as much, but I'm also not as hardcore about not using it either. So that's just one example of something that you can learn from the editing process when you're doing it yourself first and then sending it off. But back to editing. When you pay for an editor you're looking at probably two cents a word is going to be the cost. And if your book is just at a low level of 50,000 words, you're looking at $1,000 to have an editor go through and, uh, and go at it. Now, the price may have gone up a little bit just uh, from the last time I looked last year. I wouldn't be surprised, but let's say it's three cents a word now. And we're looking at a, at a novel of 80,000 words. You're looking at spending roughly twenty-four dollars to $2,500 for the editor. With that in mind, and knowing that they might still make mistakes, that's a lot of money for pretty much anybody. That's like a disaster in your home level of money that you'd have to scramble around and find money for to, say, fix your faucet. So... Since you're going to spend that much money on your book, you need to make sure that you treat this like an employment application, that the person that you are hiring, you need to ask them some questions. Do you like the genre? I've actually gone over this in my editing uh, podcast, so you can find that uh, elsewhere. But just a quick note that when you do send off your chapter to get sample edited, because you do want them to at least hit your book once so you can see what kind of work they do. Pick a chapter like four or five, somewhere 
at the point where you've started to get your rhythm in writing, and maybe it hasn't had as much scrutiny. Chapter one tends to have the most scrutiny when it comes to writers. When I was editing, chapter one was always the cleanest of the beginning of the book. And you could kind of tell where people stopped because all of a sudden a chapter would look really good compared to the last two. And you'd, you'd understand that maybe they wrote those last two all in one go and then they took a long break or, or even just a short break. And when they came back, they were really a lot more focused. So you want to pick something that you maybe didn't have as much focus. And that way you can see how much work it's going to be for the editor. And, and if they catch things that you go, yeah, that's something that I really want to focus on. Likewise, it can help the editor decide if they want to work on the book because $2,500 might not be enough for them if they find 300 errors on the first two pages. That's a whole lot of extra work. Uh, I like to go to an editor with something that is as clean as possible, not first draft. You don't want to do that. You want to come to them with something that you have spent the time to clean up already. You're wasting a lot of money if you don't do your own edits first. If you don't do everything you can in-house, give it to your friends to read or whoever's going to read it. Read it yourself out loud. Find every mistake you possibly can. You really want the editor to be cleaning it up, not solving the problems. You want to have already found the problems. And then if the editor does find some problems, they should be a little bit more rare. They shouldn't be like, well, this book is just littered with huge issues that you're going to need to address. Now, I've had somebody come out one of my books like that, where they had a very strong opinion about how to write in a specific genre. And they really hit my book hard with, with things that they thought were errors that, that really aren't. They're kind of more opinion issues. And that's where it comes down to you getting that sample and talking to them and understanding them better. I was assigned the editor by my publisher. So I did actually ask for a different editor to help me because it was clear that our two philosophies didn't mesh and they were just going to litter the whole book with red on things that I wasn't planning on changing anyway because I stylistically chose to write those things. They weren't uh, foundational problems. They weren't things that you would find in a book on writing or, you know, uh, formation, anything like that. They were literally opinions. And you need to make sure that if you're going to get opinions from your editor, rather than just clean up, that your opinions are at least close to the same. It can be cool to be challenged if you are in a place that maybe you're a little more unsure of exactly how something should look or read. But anyway, there is a delicate line between uh, ignoring their advice and and uh, employing it. And of course, you're paying for it. So always remember that you are the final arbiter of what you pick and what you keep. But that's why you really want to know who you're working with because you're spending a lot of money and it should be valuable and it needs to have value. Now, will it have a return of investment? Are you going to make... $2,500 plus more on your book because you had a professional editor, it's going to be really hard to tell because you don't necessarily want to put a book out without that just to find out that the next one that you paid for made a lot more money. You have no idea whether or not that editing necessarily helped 
unless you just don't see any negative reviews about editing. Uh, I've seen books that are super clean still get attacked for some editing problems. It's the internet and people are intense. So you got to keep that thing in mind. I mean, they'll attack everything. They'll attack the way that you do quotes. They'll attack your book cover. They'll attack everything if there's something to be attacked. And here's the thing. In some cases, you should ignore those things because there is a vocal minority when it comes to quote-unquote perfection about anything. Music, art, writing, movies, whatever. You're going to get a vocal minority that pretty much doesn't like anything or they're going to nitpick things. Whether or not those people who do that hardcore nitpicking are actually also artists as well, that's harder to say. I would be willing to say they're not because I know for a fact that I can nitpick like an absolute maniac. I can nitpick pretty much anything. TV, shows especially, anything at all. I have spent so much time absorbing media that I can get really snippy if I want to. I just don't. And I haven't for a very long time. It's so counterproductive. And unless the artist has asked for my advice, there's not really much purpose in me doing it. All I'm going to be doing is making people who liked it second guess their taste. And unless it's like literally broken in the example of a book that is just so poorly edited, it's clear that they just threw a first draft online and hoped for the best. I would review it as such. I would say whether or not I finished it. And I would mention that it has no editing. You know, it's pretty obvious when a book has absolutely zero editing. And I'm not against making a review that does that. I am against nitpicking things that are clearly something that someone did spend some time on and that they had quite a bit of work put into it. There's not much point in nitpicking. You can call out what you didn't like and move on, but this vocal minority I'm talking about will get a lot more hardcore about that. So let's keep those things in mind when you go into this, that you've spent a lot of money and you still might get some reviews that that basically make it sound like you didn't. Um, it's pretty much that way with all of the different services you can pay for. Maybe you get your book all done and now you need someone to typeset it. Well, that's another expense. It's not necessarily difficult to typeset a book. You can learn how to do it through... YouTube, Udemy, whatever. I mean, these are things, pretty much everything, you can learn how to do it. Let's say you're just going to write the book. You're not going to do anything else yourself. You're just going to pay for services for everything else. You're looking at $2,500 to have an 80,000-word book edited. Uh, $200 for a cover. It could be cheaper, could be more, but let's just leave it at $200. Typeset, around $100. Uh, getting someone else to write the blurb, probably around $80, though I'm sure you could get it a little bit cheaper. It's not a lot of writing, but you do want it to be high quality. Marketing can be pretty much anything you want it to be as far as price is concerned, but you probably would look at around $5,000 if you're not going to do anything at all yourself. Uh, Printing the book is probably going to be around $1,000 to get enough of them. And then distribution could be anywhere between $500 and and $1,000. 
So minimally, you're looking at around $10,000 to do all of that. There are places that will do everything for you for a bargain. And I'm going to put that in quotes. They are from start to finish uh, houses that do every aspect of the uh, of the of the book creation uh, process. And they, they probably are cheaper than that. They'll get it in all the right places and that sort of thing. Uh, so that's something you could keep in mind. But any one of those things that you can do yourself is more money for you. Unless you think that spending that $10,000 is going to earn you double or more that money. And maybe it will. Maybe it will. And you just need to explore that. But not a lot of people have $10,000 to risk in this way. Now, with writing, it's less of a risk than, say, playing the lotto. I mean, you have much more control over your chances of success. You can look at trends and understand what might or might not be successful. And maybe you have a uh, expertise in some field that will be of uh, interest to a lot of people. So you have a ready-made audience or whatever. So it could be that $10,000 is nothing and you just want to throw it out there and try it. The same goes with music. If you were doing a music CD and you wrote the songs at home on a guitar or your piano or whatever, and then you wanted to record it, you're looking at studio time and it's usually an hourly rate and maybe you can buy it in blocks and save some money. Then after that, you've got to pay the mixing engineer to get that done. You've got to pay a mastering person to do that part. And then once all that's done, you've got to get it organized on the CD. You've got to get it either printed if you want to sell some at a show or you've got to get it distributed to all of the streaming services. You've got to market it. And so you're looking at a similar setup because there are all those steps that need to be taken. And considering this is all about return of investment, you have to think, is there any of those things, anything on this list that maybe I could learn how to do and be really good at it? Is this something that I am talented in? Oftentimes, you'll see that a lot of people doing this kind of thing are also throwing out a bunch of different kinds of art form. Maybe a uh, writer is also doing audiobooks, not just their own, that they're reading because they happen to be good at voice acting or they've done it before. Or maybe you see someone doing their own book covers because before they did a job where they were doing graphic arts. Whatever the case may be, if you can employ something from your past or your profession and put that into your work, that's just, again, that's something that you can help the return of investment. And hopefully it's something that you can do that's fun. And you have to think about this uh, from the perspective that your learning skills that are going to improve as you use them. And the longer you use them, the more you use them, the better chance you're going to have of really enjoying what you do and having more say over every aspect. If you're a total control freak, then learning how to do all of this stuff allows you to keep your fingers in all the pies. You can then decide exactly what that book cover is going to look like. And if you don't have the skill set or you're just on the verge of getting it, then push yourself to get it. Because when it comes to being a control freak, the more you can do, the happier you'll be. Even if you had the money to spend you would have to compromise in some way or other throughout that process. So doing as much as you can also rewards the control freak because they are able to uh, hold on to their vision 
and make it their own. Um, I wouldn't necessarily call myself a control freak, but I probably am because I do have a vision for how everything needs to work. And oftentimes when I do hand things off to other people, I find their work ethic doesn't really match what I think it should. That's not to say they have bad work ethic. It's just that I expect something else. And so then I end up doing it myself. Uh, I do pay for quite a few services at this point as well. So I have gotten to the point where there are things that I'm not as happy doing and I don't like doing them. So I push that on to a contractor or whatever. So anyway, that's sort of my return of investment spiel. It really does come down to deciding whether or not you want to learn how to do all that stuff. If you have the resources and if you don't, if you are a rank amateur and you do not have a lot of money, then learning these things is well worth your time. It's much like when I was a much younger person, we would have cars that were easy to fix so that we could do it ourselves because we didn't have the time or the money to put it into a shop and have them do the work. So we learned how to do it ourselves. And the more you learn to do yourself, the more money you get to keep, uh, the more money you don't have, you don't have to find. And so I guess that what I'm saying is this whole podcast is sort of directed more at people who are in a position where they don't necessarily have the resources or funds to throw into a major project. This is for people who are like, wow, I do not have, I haven't seen $2,000 since my last tax return and that wasn't even close. So this is more for them who are listening and going, I need a way to get a book to market without necessarily breaking my bank. There is one last thing I want to talk about, and that is volunteered time. Maybe you know people who are capable of doing these things and they just love you to death and they want to donate their time. I'm not really an advocate of donating time or employing folks that are totally volunteering because everybody deserves to get paid for what they do. Everyone deserves something. Now, there is the trade industry. So you edit my book and I'll do your book cover. You do my typeset and I'll write the jingle for your book trailer. That kind of thing. If you want to go down that path, absolutely. If you've got the resource pool to do trades, that is a fantastic way to build a community. Because maybe, what if the person who edited your book for free, who happens to be a brand new editor and just wants to get their work out there, gets more work because of your book? Or maybe your book sells so much that the next time you can pay them and then maybe give them a bonus for doing the first one. That kind of stuff is awesome if you can find it and if it's reliable. Sometimes unpaid work or even trade work gets relegated to the back burner and it won't get done as fast as the stuff that people are putting money into. So keep that in mind as well. But if you got the resources and you know the people who can do it and everyone's willing and happy, then by all means, take advantage of that stuff and uh, just, you know, make sure you're doing right by them and helping them out as much as they help you. Anyway, Let's move on to the other topic. This one will be much shorter, and it's going to be about the malevolence role-playing game. There are hundreds of role-playing game systems out there, so the question comes down to why did I create a brand new one for malevolence rather than use something on the OGL or whatever else? 
And that comes down to the style of game that I wanted it to be. Now, I did create a role-playing game for the Society Case Files, and that does have some some familiar tropes as far as how the game plays. Um, And I am trying to get a Savage Worlds version done as well. So I will be doing a established system with that one as well as my own. But with Malevolence, it's a different beast. It's very narrative. And what I mean by that is that it focuses more on the characters and the story than it does on the system and the fighting and the combat and all that crazy stuff. In the case of Malevolence specifically, I've removed the static game master from the equation. At this point, there are opportunities for everybody at the table to take control when they have a story idea and run with it. But when there is not a large-scale story going on, then the entire group sort of has control of what's happening. And it works more as a consensus. So if someone wants to, say, batter down a door and we're in troop play mode, then everyone just sort of says, eh, you know, whatever. Let's just go by the basic. It's a difficulty of whatever. And then they figure it out from there. Whereas when a director takes over and is running a story then they're the ones who come up with those target numbers. So it's interesting in the sense that we're taking a step back from the very established idea of a role-playing game where the game master is driving the story somewhat by throwing events out there for the players to latch onto and decide if they're going to take that hook or if they're going to go off on a different direction. In this, the direction is devised before we even begin by picking a theme and a concept that we want to explore and then creating characters that we all play. Each player is going to take on multiple characters and each of these characters is either a star, a supporting role, a minor role, or an extra. Uh, You might be playing a star and a minor character whereas somebody else may play a star and a supporting character, and a bunch of extras. Uh, Anyone could necessarily play an extra if necessary. So what's also really cool about it is, let's say that we're playing with four people, and there's one person who's sort of directing a story at that time. So we've got five people sitting at the table, and two of them have nothing to do with this scene that is going on. So the director is working with those two people, and these two grab a couple of extra characters that are not involved and they run a character building scene where they just hang out and sort of talk through events that they've seen. And maybe they generate some ideas for the next major story so that they can also take over as director at some point. This really is going to work great for things like a dark shadows style game. That's more of a soap opera where the character uh, development is more important than anything involving it there are other narrative games out there like vampire and uh, stuff like that but the difference between malevolence and vampire is that vampire still focuses on a lot of system bits it's pretty crunchy whereas most of the system stuff in malevolence is only there to assist with getting over the basics of conflict resolution and oftentimes conflict resolution is suggested to be something that you just work out 
as opposed to constantly doing draws. You use cards in the Malevolence game instead of dice. But uh, if it's at all possible to keep the action going without bogging it down with a quick draw, then do it. There are numbers in there just to quick compare. Like if two people had a scuffle, you know, maybe they broke into a fist fight at a bar. You don't really care about the outcome. It's not going to be that important because these two people, they're not super integral to the story. Maybe they just are mad at each other for a few minutes and they throw down. You could just compare their overall physical. And if one guy had a four and the other one had three, then you know that the guy with the four is going to come out on top. You describe it. The guy with the three, maybe he gets a black eye. He decides that. And then you move on. But if it's more intense, if the two guys at the bar have decided they're going to kill each other and they pull knives, that's when you want to break into the system, start comparing the nuanced uh, attributes and use some skills and and do it properly. Because it is there to do that, but it's much lighter than, than other systems and it should move much quicker. So this game should appeal to people who are more interested in the social dynamics of a role-playing game. It would really work for folks who love live-action role-playing, uh, improv theater, it's taking a lot of inspiration from that sort of thing. And overall, it's it's just a very different experience than sitting down to a Dungeons & Dragons game. So if you are the type of player that is like, oh my goodness, here's another combat, I guess this is what's happening for the next two hours. If you just kind of feel your soul being sucked out whenever you have a multi-hour situation that bogs the story down then this is for you and i hope that folks will take a look at it when it is ready i'm going to be showing it off soon Um, again i had just finished the book i did the layout and stuff i'm now making characters um all of the people from the comic and the novella series i'm actually going to be putting them into the book for uh examples and uh once that's done, then I'm going to be playtesting it pretty hard. Now, full disclosure, my wife and I have been playing this style of game um, practically every other day for the last several years. So we really do know how to make it work properly already. The next step is to bring some other people in and get their feedback and see how they respond to it and see if we can address any questions in the book. Because, of course... Uh, sometimes you explain things that make sense to you and the person that you are closest to, but an outsider is like, what does that even mean? This makes no sense. So I really just need to make sure that I address some of those things and uh, we'll be good to go. Anyway, that's all from me this week. I want to thank you very much for listening to the show. If you liked what you heard and you want to hear more, please visit the website at www. Societycasefiles.com. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do so at www.ko-fi.com slash societycasefiles. And there is now a website that you could visit for malevolence called www.welcometomalevolence.com. And you can see what's going on there as far as the audio drama and the role-playing game and everything else. I'll all be up there for you to take a look at. Anyway, thank you again for stopping by. Look forward to seeing you next time. Have a good one.